0: Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We continue our journey through John's Gospel. We have made it now to Chapter 4, so we continue to move at a steady pace. As I said to you when we embarked on this, this was going to be a long journey together. But hopefully this is not the the kind of journey that you hope is over quickly, but rather it's the kind of journey that you say, well, can't we just stay in the car for another hour or two? Um, I have been very much blessed in my study of the Gospel of John, and I trust that the Lord has used that in your life as well. Our text that we will be looking at is the beginning of the fourth chapter. The fourth chapter really breaks up into three sections there's this initial story of jesus with the woman at the well and then in two weeks we will look at jesus's conversation with her about worship and then the next week we will look at her witness to her community many um, commentators and preachers will say that this breaks down and you'll see the alliteration water worship witness And so this morning, we are looking at a story about living water. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, or have to come here to draw water. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That as we look at this incident in which our Savior speaks to this woman, And he opens up for her the need that we have, O Lord. A need that we have for living water. We pray, O Lord, that you would fix our eyes on the Savior. And that as we go to him, we would find that living water. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. you don't need me to tell you it but it's true life is hard how do we face the challenges of life does it seem to you that you face the same challenges over and over and over again like you are doomed to rolling a rock up a hill only to have it roll back down over you so you have to send it up the hill again Well, if you have these challenges and difficulties John points us today to the one who has answers and who gives us hope. And even I think more importantly, we see here this morning that Jesus has answers for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, Jesus has the answers of life. And so this morning, as we look at this discussion between our Lord Jesus Christ and this woman of Samaria, I would like us to see three things. First, John introduces us to the Savior. We learn a bit more about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then secondly, John describes the offer that Jesus makes, the offer of the gospel. And then thirdly, John points us to the hope. That Jesus brings when we accept that offer of the gospel the hope that is ours because of Jesus the Savior the offer and the hope well let's begin then by looking at the Savior now John is coming back here to a story of Jesus one of the things that I have enjoyed about this gospel of John is that John alternates back and forth between Um, significant theological statements and stories about what Jesus has done. And this is a way in which John makes them flow back and forth, supporting each other and giving us a variety as we understand more about Jesus. We've seen this already in John chapter 1. We have this great prologue in which Jesus is described as being from the beginning, being God, with God, the creator of all things. And then, in that same chapter, there's a story about Jesus gathering disciples. And then in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding and has great joy and blesses the wedding with his first miracle. But then after that, John tells us that Jesus did not commit himself to man for he knew what was in every man. And then, of course, there's chapter 3, where we just were most recently. That wonderful conversation, that meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. And that chapter, you will recall, we looked at recently, ends with, again, more theology. That how the Father loves the Son and has given to the Son all things into His hand. And that by believing in the Son, we have eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. And so now back again into a story of Jesus at the start of this fourth chapter. We're about to see Jesus interact with someone else. We saw him interact with Nicodemus. And now he's going to interact with someone who is very different than Nicodemus. Now, Jesus comes here, let's not miss it, as an intentional part of his greater ministry. The chapter opens up, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left for Judea and departed again for Galilee. So the Pharisees have found out what Jesus is doing. They've seen that Jesus is gathering a crowd that he is, or his disciples rather, John corrects us, are baptizing. He's making disciples. He's teaching them. And you remember that Recently, we looked at how John's disciples didn't like this. They didn't like that Jesus was becoming more popular than their teacher. You know, you'll recall we said they looked at John and they said, John, you're John the Baptist. That's your thing. How can we let Jesus take over your thing? He's becoming bigger than you. And it wasn't just John and his disciples that saw this. It was the Pharisees as well. So we should have expected this. John knew about it. He knew about the controversy. But as yet, Jesus' ministry is just beginning. And yet, Jesus is shaking things up here in Judea. And so Jesus decides to go from Judea, which is far in the south, back to his hometown area of Galilee, farther in the north. Now, why does he do this? Perhaps it is to avoid a confrontation right now with the Pharisees. Because we will see later when Jesus is amongst the Pharisees and there is a confrontation, they immediately begin to plot to kill him. And Jesus knows his time has not yet come. And so he doesn't want that confrontation to happen now. It is for another day. And so Jesus leaves that area. It could also be perhaps that Jesus wants to give John the space to conduct his own ministry here in Judea. It will not be long from now before John is captured and put to death by Herod. So Jesus goes back to Galilee where we saw him in chapter 2. Now notice something in verse 4. It's a very short verse, but it's an important one. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now this verse tells us a lot about Jesus. On the one hand... Samaria was in between Judea and Galilee. There's Judea, Samaria, and then Galilee. So, in one sense, Jesus has to go through that middle area to get back up to the north. On the other hand, he did not have to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, most Jews didn't. When they went from north to south or south to north, they went around Samaria. They went a longer route near the Jordan River to avoid going to Samaria. We'll understand why in just a few minutes. So this is not just a statement about geography. There's something else going on here. Jesus has a divine appointment. We have to understand that everything Jesus did was for a purpose. And so as we study and read about what he has done, it is to us, to look to the Spirit, to describe for us, to help us to understand what Jesus' purpose is here. Why was this described to us? Why does John include this statement? Well, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who initiates action. There's a great deal going on here. Jesus has many important things that are going on, many important matters, and yet he must go to a small town he must go to a bad country he must meet one woman do you know that this is the Jesus of today that he meets everyday people and he makes time to change their lives there's no one like Jesus we can all be too busy To be involved with anyone or with certain people or certain activities. Not Jesus. Everyone is important to Jesus. That's something that we need to remember. We're also seeing something else important about Jesus, a clue that John gives to us. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now we often think of John, rightly so, as highlighting Jesus' deity. That was what chapter 1 was all about. Over and over again, John is giving us all of the proofs that Jesus is God. Not like a God, not under God, but God. That He was in the beginning, and He was with God, and He was God. But here what we see is, is something that should stand out to us, something that's important. Here we see Jesus' true humanity. It's true. It's real. Jesus is hot. He's thirsty. He's tired. He's weary. Have you ever felt that way? Traveling and going somewhere, especially here in Texas with all this sun and heat. You get tired And you just want to rest from your journey. You just need something to drink. Well, Jesus knows what you feel like. Because Jesus is not only very God, he is very man. Jesus understands you. Don't ever forget that. And this is proof of this. Because you may say to yourself, well, how can this be? How does God get tired? And the answer is he doesn't. Well, then how is Jesus tired? And I have to say, I don't know. It's a part of the mystery of Jesus being the God-man. But the Bible clearly teaches us that. And this is important for us. Well, a woman then comes up to the well, and the interaction that Jesus has with her is fascinating. You see, she is coming to the well at the wrong time. Now, just so that you know, The clock, so to speak, was kept differently in Jesus' day than in our day. So in our day, the first hour is midnight in the middle of the night. In Jesus' day, the first hour was 6 o'clock, the time you get up. Did you hear me that, teens? That's the time you get up. And so I know for some of you, 9 o'clock is the first hour. Or during the summer, 12 noon is the first hour. But here, the first hour is six. So we can understand easily, add six to six, it's high noon. That's when she comes to the well. Now, she's the only one coming to the well. Jesus is sitting there by himself. There's no one else around, and she comes by herself. There has to be a reason for this, because women didn't come to the well by themselves. They would always go in a group for uh, protection, and quite frankly, for enjoyment together. Now, you know, ladies, you may not know this, but men can go and have lunch and be done in 15 or 20 minutes. We can go and go to lunch and eat and focus and do what we need to do and move on. You can't have lunch with the ladies less than an hour or an hour and a half. There's got to be all kinds of discussion and encouragement and tales and catching up. And that's, that's just the way ladies are, and I love it. So why would she come here by herself? Why wouldn't she come here with the rest of the ladies? And why wouldn't she come when it's not 150 degrees? Why wouldn't she come in the morning or in the evening? There's something got to be going on here. Perhaps it's that she's not welcome. We don't exactly know. It could be, as we'll find out later in the story, that the ladies don't want to be around her because she's known as an immoral woman. It could be that she has... uh, an embarrassment around other women. It could be that she is uh, not able to be around them. Whatever the reason is, she comes not only by herself, but at the worst time to come. And that's intentional, we think. She's coming at this time because she knows no one will be there. And she can come and avoid all the stares and all of the gossip and get her water and go about her day. Except, Jesus is there. Now, notice what happens. This tells you who Jesus is. Jesus initiates with her. The woman comes to the well to draw water. You could just imagine. She comes in, she sees Jesus, and she does that thing that you and I do when we see someone that we really don't want to have a conversation with in public. We become busy looking at the ground. Or doing what we're going to do. We don't want to make eye contact. As soon as you make eye contact, there's talking going on. And as soon as there's talking going on, you're stuck. So she is avoiding all of this. So it's Jesus who initiates with her. He says to her, give me a drink. Now, this is not something that would be normally done. We think, well, so Jesus, he's a friendly guy. He talks to her. This is not what happened in Jesus's day. Men did not initiate discussions with women for several reasons. First, in Jesus' society, women were beneath men. It was a waste of time for a man to spend his time talking with a woman. Secondly, there was an issue of morality here. You wouldn't want to get involved, be seen by others speaking to a woman. And even more than that, Jesus is in a foreign land. He's in Samaria. And he's by himself. And on top of all of that, this woman is very likely, as we've said, an outcast. So this is a big deal that Jesus is initiating. You see, Jesus does this because he knows her. He knows her need. We'll find out more about that later. And so Jesus reaches out to her. And and do you see how simply he does this? You see how it's a simple phrase, a short phrase, give me some water. I want you to think about this in your own life. If you are afraid to witness to others, afraid to start conversations with others, you know, you don't need to start a conversation with a stranger with, have you been reading the book of Romans lately? Or have you thought much about the hypostatic union? You don't need to begin there. You could start with something like, is that your car outside? What year is it? Where did you go to school? Is that shirt you're wearing your favorite team? What part of town do you live in? And you can start a real and significant spiritual discussion with something that simple. I know you can do it because Jesus did. So remember that. Now, do you see here how this is just part of a pattern of what we see in Jesus over and over again, that Jesus is the one who reaches out? Jesus doesn't wait for people to be worthy of talking to him. Jesus doesn't wait for them to break the ice. He's the one who initiates it, and it doesn't matter who they are. You couldn't imagine, for example, two people more different than Nicodemus and this woman. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. This woman is a nobody. Nicodemus is a respected religious figure. This woman has multiple husbands. Nicodemus has a name. She doesn't. In almost every way, they are the opposite. But there is a constant. And the constant is that Jesus knows their need. And he knows that the answer to their need is him. Is this how you follow Jesus? You see, Jesus is here at the well and he's tired. But he's not so tired to reach out. He's not afraid of who she was. He looks past that to her need. Perhaps you don't like to talk to people like this woman. You're afraid because she's not the right sort of people, or you're not sure how she'll react, or will she get violent, or you know she doesn't have the same kind of background and upbringing that I did. I'm not sure I'll connect. Well, in the same way, others of you don't ever want to have a conversation with Nicodemus. He's so much more knowledgeable than me. He knows all about the Bible, knows all about these writings. How could I possibly talk to him? But you see, the key here is not being afraid of who people are, but instead being willing to go outside of your comfort zone to talk to other people about Jesus. Well, Jesus takes this initiative, but the interchange shows us how different she is from Jesus. And Jesus has to cross barriers to reach her. We already know she's an outcast because of the time she's at the well. But what John also highlights for us is that she is a Samaritan. She doesn't have a name, but look here in verse 7. A woman from Samaria. And then again in verse 9, the Samaritan woman. And then again, a woman of Samaria. Do you get it? John doesn't want you to miss this. Guess where she's from? Yes, it's Samaria. Believe it or not. That's where she's from. Now, what does this mean? Why does he emphasize this? Who are the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans are a people that, as we've said, lived kind of in the middle of Palestine, between Judea and Galilee. And they were a people that the Jews hated. You may recall this from the story of the Good Samaritan, that how Jesus told a story that was shocking that a Samaritan would stop And would help a Jew. And there would have been Jews that would have said, let me lay there and die before a Samaritan touches me. That's how much I hate them. Now, what's with the animosity here? Well, you may recall that after the division of the kingdom of Israel into the northern and the southern kingdoms, that the northern kingdom was conquered first by the empire of Assyria. This was about 700 B.C a few hundred years before the southern kingdom fell to Babylon, an entirely different kingdom. And the Assyrians, they had kind of a master plan for conquest. And what they did was they went in and conquered a place, and then they took all of the people who were of nobility, who had skills, who potentially could be leaders, and they took them and they dragged them off into exile to some other country. And they left behind the poor and the slaves and the sick and the lame. And then they would bring people from other countries and drop them into that conquered land. And they did that here. They left behind some Jews and they brought in Gentiles from other countries. And the Gentiles began to then intermarry with the Jews that were left, which is a big no-no in God's law. And then even more than that, what they would begin to do is they would bring their gods into the land of Samaria. And they would begin to do something that is technically called syncretism, but you could just think of it as kind of smushing your religion with their religion to come up with a new third religion. And that's what they did. So in some senses, the Samaritans were like Jews. They believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But in another sense, they weren't. They didn't believe any of the other books had any authority at all. And they would technically worship God, but they would worship God along with other gods. And they went so far as to create for themselves a new temple. They didn't go down to worship at the Temple of Jerusalem, they built a temple at Mount Gerizim. You may recall that that was one of the mountains on which the Israelites stood before they went into the Promised Land to receive the covenant. Of God, So that's where they get Mount Gerizim from. It's big in the first five books of the Bible. Those are the books of the Bible we believe in. We don't believe all this stuff about David and about the prophets and about Jerusalem. We're going with Mount Gerizim. And that's what they did. And so these were people that fought with the Jews over religion, over culture, and they really didn't like each other. It was not a one-way dislike. And so there is... A tale, its not actually a tale, it's a a history, that what happened within Jesus' lifetime, in 6 AD, a group of Samaritans snuck into the temple in Jerusalem and scattered human bones throughout the temple, therefore making the whole temple unclean. Now, could you imagine that? That does not make them most favored nation status. No. So there are lots of reasons for Jews to hate Samaritans. And there are then lots of reasons and lots of barriers that Jesus has to cross to get to her. First, she's a woman. Now, we've talked about this. That made her less worthwhile. A normal rabbi wouldn't waste his time speaking with a woman, trying to teach a woman. It would be beneath him. So he's got to cross that gender barrier. Secondly, there is the ethnic and cultural barrier that I've been talking about. That Samaritans and Jews don't get along at all. They see themselves as very distinct. They're not like close second cousins. No, they're more like almost mortal enemies. He's got to cross that barrier. And then third, there's on top of it a religious taboo. Look with me if you would at verse 9. You see the parenthetical that John gives to us. This is John uh, making a comment about the Samaritan woman's statement. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John says, you see, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that's a perfectly good translation. But this word, have no dealings, can also mean, technically, use utensils in common. And so what John is telling us is, is that for the Jews, the Samaritans weren't just bad people. They were unclean. And if you go around unclean people, you become unclean. And so, that's another barrier Jesus has to cross. Now, Jesus crosses this barrier all the time. We saw that barrier in our scripture reading earlier, where Jesus went and he touched the leper. Now, if we go to the Old Testament, we will see in all instances, when someone touches a leper... The leper stays unclean and that person becomes unclean and then has to be segmented off from society. Only Jesus, not only does not become unclean, he makes the leper clean. So Jesus crosses that barrier as well. And so he makes this statement, give me a drink to cross barriers to get to her. And she is astonished by it. Look at her response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? And yet, she's still drawn to Jesus. She doesn't run away. This section here of John's Gospel is likely one of the longest, if not the longest, conversations that Jesus is recorded as having with a single person. So she's not running for the hills. She's drawn to him. One commentator puts it this way. Here is God, so loving the world, not in theory, but in action. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus crossed boundaries that she never would have. He initiated with her, and she would never be the same again. Are you willing to cross such barriers? So many in this world are willing to talk about barriers, but not cross them. Are you willing to talk to those sorts of people? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Well, notice also how Jesus perseveres with her. Her response is not exactly friendly. It's not really seeker-sensitive, is it? What are you doing here? Why would you have a dealing with me? In fact, she highlights the differences. There's animosity here. It's as if she's trying to end an uncomfortable conversation. Almost as if what she's expecting from Jesus is, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were a Samaritan. I'll leave you alone. But remember, Jesus is the one asking her for something. And Jesus' response is telling. Now, it goes without saying, but every time Jesus speaks, we need to listen and see what he's doing. Now, he had initiated with her He'd even confronted her because he's asking her for something. And now he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is even more startling. She's resisting giving something to him. And he says, if you only knew, you'd be asking me. Jesus started by asking, but that was just to engage her. He's making clear now that he's not the one in need. She is. And he says, if you knew the gift, which means she doesn't know what could be given. This is clear from verse 11, her response there. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? It's as if she says to Jesus, Jesus, You're crazy. You don't even have a bucket. How could you give me any water? And then when Jesus speaks of living water, she's thinking about a stream or a river because in uh, that day, there were two types of water. There was still water and there was uh, living water or lively water. And still water would be water that you would have in a well, not moving Living water would be a stream rushing along or a river. And if you know anything about water, you know it's more healthy and actually tastes better to take living water, running water, than to take from something that's, that's still. It's one of the reasons why we have water that comes uh, out of a faucet and we get it that way rather than just filling up a bucket and then using that all week. We don't do it. So she says, there's no stream around here what are you talking about, living water? And, you know, she makes a statement later in verse 12 about, are you greater than our father Jacob? It's as if she's saying to him, listen, sir, if there was a stream around here, Jacob would have found it. That's why he dug this well. Not only is there no stream easy to see, we can guarantee for thousands of years people have been using this well. There's no river around here. There's no stream around here. What are you talking about? How can I possibly get living water? Now, this seems crazy until we remember Nicodemus. Do you remember when Jesus said to him, You must be born again? What his reaction was? Jesus, you're crazy. How am I going to climb back up in my mother's womb? You see? Jesus is speaking of spiritual realities to them. and They don't get it yet. They only see what's in front of them, the physical that's there. The problem is she's thinking too small. She thinks the gift is a sip of water. She doesn't know that Jesus sees through her to her real need, that he can solve her real need, not just this temporary thirst. And people do this all the time, don't they? When you go up to someone and say, can I help you with something? Do you need something? They'll either say, no, 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 I'm fine. Or they'll make up something small and distracting. You know, it's not too usual when you walk up to someone you don't know and you say, can I help you with something? And they say, oh, yes, I have been looking for someone to pour my heart out about my son and daughter. No, they just don't do that. They put up a front. That's what she's doing here. But Jesus says, you need to look to your true need. And once you do, this will cause you to understand and ask for the gift that meets your need. Some of you here this morning have been avoiding going to God for your true need. Now, you have needs. I understand that. Health needs, financial needs, job concerns, school needs. But you haven't gone to the Lord and said, what I really need, Lord, is to grow in holiness. What I really need, Lord, is to be in your word more. What I really need, Lord, is to be changed more into your image so that I might lead my family, bless my coworkers and my neighbors. You see, we put up an immediate But not ultimate need to God. But there's more than that. Jesus says, you not only don't understand the gift, you don't understand the giver either. Jesus wants her to know that the offer is more than the gift. The nature of the gift comes from the nature of the giver. And that makes sense because only a capable giver can give such a gift. And so she shows that she does not know the giver in front of her. Look at verse 11 again. Sir, who are you and what are you thinking? Verse 12. Do you think that you are greater than Jacob? Now, the irony is we're sitting here going, yeah, of course. Yes. But to her, the answer is no, of course not. Who are you, guy sitting by the well, to tell me? how I should live my life and what I should do. In fact, she says the reason we have this well here is that there's no living water. Now, now this is often how people respond to God. We act as if God needs to be bribed before he would give to us and help us. Lord, I'll do this for you, and then I need you to do that for me. Lord, look at all I've done for you. Will you bless me and help me? Or otherwise, we may act as if God has some kind of limit on how much grace he can give. We look around and we say, well, I don't think God's got grace for me. He's given grace to all these folks and all these folks. I don't think he's got any left over for me. We act as if somehow God has a a storehouse of grace that is limited. Or perhaps we act as if God doesn't really know us. He doesn't really know what we need. And so therefore, He doesn't care about us. But Jesus shows that all of this is just wrong. The truth is that the gift of God comes from God's love and His knowledge of our need. Remember John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, the gift comes from the love of God. It's God's love that sent Jesus to die so that you would not perish. It was God's knowledge of our need that required the sacrifice of His Son. It was God's understanding of our lack of ability that caused Him to do everything that was necessary to accomplish salvation. Do you know the giver? Because that is the gospel. Jesus' offer is the gospel. To be saved, you must know what the gift of God is and who Jesus is as the one who offers it. And the good news is that that's all that's needed. Nothing else. If you believe in Jesus now, you will be saved and have the gift of God. Now, what is that gift? As we have seen The woman still doesn't understand. She's still thinking about liquid. So Jesus responds again to her the third time to help her to understand. He wants her to know that the gift is beyond anything she could imagine. He wants to give her hope from this gift. Now, do you see how often Jesus uses analogies or examples of things that we understand full well that are everyday occurrences in our lives to Show us spiritual realities. He says, you must be born again, and we all understand birth. He says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and you must look up to Him. And we understand what that looks like. He talks about the light, and we all know what light is. And here now He's talking about water, and we all know what water is. And so Jesus reminds her of her ongoing and desperate need because of the water. Look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Now, water is something that is precious in life. And it is life-saving in this place. We don't think much about water because you could go out now and in five or six different places in this building, you're not even home, you can get fresh, drinkable water. You don't ever think about water, do you? I know I don't. We don't think about it because we have it in plenty. But here... If you didn't have water, if you didn't plan for water, if you didn't plan to go to the well and plan to have a place to put it and plan to have a place to store it, you could die of thirst. We do realize how important water is when we don't have it. Think about the recent events in Jackson, Mississippi. The water treatment plant there failed and there was no water and it was... Chaos in the city. And it was a national news story that people didn't have any water. And what would they do and how would they survive? And they had to truck in water from all different places. Because without water, you die. Jesus says this. But then he also says, this water that you get doesn't fully satisfy. But I have water that will. He's not offering ordinary water. He says, you will never thirst again. What words of hope he brings. It's one thing to say your troubles will be relieved. Your troubles will be pushed off. It's another thing to say they'll be gone forever. He keeps pointing her past the literal to her true need that she has. And this is a theme in the Bible. Water is a source of spiritual life from God. That's a theme in the Bible that occurs over and over again. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet Jeremiah chastises the people of Israel because he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah says, you're forsaking the fountain of good water and you're carrying a bucket with a hole in it and filling it up and acting surprised when you get home and it's empty. It's a bucket with a hole. What are you thinking? You've forsaken the fountain of living waters. Isaiah in chapter 44, verse 3 writes, For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then again, Jeremiah chapter 17. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And then, of course, the Bible ends with the book of Revelation in the 7th chapter, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of, guess what? Living water. That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you see the hope that He offers here? Whoever drinks, a Samaritan woman, a Pharisee ruler, a fisherman, You, whoever drinks, will never be thirsty again. You may have been thirsty before, but not anymore. It doesn't matter how parched your lips or your mouth are, how long you've been without water, the gift of God will satisfy and you will never thirst again. Are you ready to receive the gift of God through Jesus? The woman did not completely understand at this point. She's still thinking about physical water. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here and draw again. But she does know that her life is a mess. She knows that she's constantly thirsty. She knows that she wants more. And now she sees that Jesus is the one who can give it to her. We all have thirst in our lives. Only Jesus can satisfy. When we come to Jesus, we're made new. We will never be the same again. And that gives us hope in the face of all of the challenges of life. Look to Jesus. He is enough. Let's pray.